And keep your Bibles open there at that passage, Revelation 22. And we'll be particularly thinking what we see there in verse 2 as it speaks about the tree of life. We began our communion season on Thursday and I said the storyline of the Bible can be told by three trees. We saw on Thursday evening the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the temptation. That was where the fall occurred. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree that they should not eat from. God had explicitly told them, do not eat from this. Because in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. That covenant relationship between God and man was broken on that day by man's sin. And so humanity was expelled from the Garden of Eden. They were no longer welcome to be in the presence of God because of their sin. We saw this morning another tree, the tree on which Jesus died, the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, as 1 Peter 2 tells us. It was necessary for Christ to be hanged on a tree. Because by being hanged on a tree, taking that capital punishment, he became the curse for us, his people. He bore the sin of his own people. And we saw that this is the way that we can come to God, having our sins removed from us. And now we come to the third and final tree. In the last chapter of the Bible, the tree of life. And of course, we already met the tree of life, didn't we, on Thursday evening, as we thought about Genesis 2 and 3. But nevertheless, this takes us to the future. This takes us to the heavenly and glorious state. And so I'm encouraging you this evening, uh, those of you who are believers, to look to heaven. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and your destination is heaven, what I'm encouraging you to do this evening is to look to heaven. Think about heaven, delight in heaven, and what there is ahead of you. What is your prospect? Think of heaven, delight in it, rejoice. And if you're not a believer, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I'm calling on you this evening to think about that, to think about heaven, and to think about how it is so much better than anything here on earth. Think about how it's exactly what you don't deserve, and see this evening the way to heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. The first thing I want us to see this evening is to go back a step and see the tree of life in the Old Testament. To see uh, that Old Testament background that informs how we're to understand this passage. The book of Revelation is a difficult book to understand. There is so much imagery, so many uh, Old Testament images that are used. And we're not just to have fanciful interpretations of it. What, what do I think this means? We're instead called to go back to the Old Testament and let it speak and let it interpret how we read the book of Revelation. And of course, when we read of the tree of life here, we're meant to go back to Genesis 2 and 3, as we thought on Thursday. That in the Garden of Eden, there was this covenant relationship between God and man. And the tree of life, as I said, the reformers used this language quite a bit. It was the sacrament of the covenant of works. 
that eating of that tree of life, it was a visible symbol of life. It was a visible symbol for them that God gives life and that God would communicate eternal life to them. Immortality could have been theirs. But it wasn't in the case, it wasn't that they simply eat of the tree and magically, automatically, they would have life. That's never the case. We shouldn't confuse the gift with the giver. God is the giver of life. Uh, and the gift, the, the fruit, is simply the symbol of that. It's not, uh, as, as in Roman Catholicism, their view of the sacrament is that it's automatic. Just simply by taking it, you receive grace. We don't accept that. Our faith must be in Christ who communicates through the sacrament. But, but this tree of life was there. And if Adam and Eve had obeyed, They could have eaten of that tree of life, and I think continually eaten of it, an ongoing feeding from that tree of life, and the Lord would have given them immortality, eternal life. Sadly, Adam and Eve, as we know, as we heard, they ate of the forbidden fruit. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the other tree in the Garden of Eden, the, the tree that God had explicitly told them not to eat from. And by so doing, they lost communion with God. No longer were they in a relationship with God. No longer were they close to God. No longer could they talk to God. And they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, the last part of the chapter, uh, God himself speaks with himself. That is, the Trinity speaks. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And therefore God expels him. And he puts the cherubim with the flaming sword to keep them from coming in. It's not, as we've already seen, that the tree of life, if if Adam and Eve had just run to that tree of life as soon as they fell, taken one of the fruit and eaten it, It's not that that would have stopped the fall, because the fall had already happened. Corruption had already come in. On the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And so simply by eating from the tree of life, if they could have gone there quick enough, it wouldn't have magically changed anything. But I think in a sense, there, if Adam and Eve had remained in the Garden of Eden, and if they had been able to eat of that tree of life, they would have eaten and drank judgment upon themselves. Similar to if an unbeliever eats in an unworthy manner of the Lord's Supper. They eat and drink judgment on themselves. They don't receive grace from it. They, they aren't blessed in it. Christ doesn't communicate his love to them in it. Rather, they do spiritual harm to themselves. 1 Corinthians 11, we read this morning, that's why many have fallen asleep. They're eating and drinking judgment to themselves. And if Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life after their fall, they would have simply eaten and drunk judgment on themselves. It would have done nothing but confirm them in their death. It would not have magically, automatically given them life. But nevertheless, their unholy hands could not touch what is holy. And God sent them out. God shunned them. He expelled them. They were not welcome in his paradise Adam and Eve, of course, had tried to cover over their sin, to pretend like nothing had happened. They sewed together fig leaves. Adam and Eve, no doubt, 
if they had been left in the Garden of Eden, would have tried uh, to get to the tree of life, thinking perhaps in their twisted, darkened way of reasoning now, thinking that by eating of that sacrament, they could make everything right. It doesn't work that way. And yet, despite the fact that God fenced off the sacrament to them, in the way we fence the table, a similar way, despite the fact God did that, God also initiated grace. God also opened up a way of salvation. He announced to them in the Garden of Eden that he was willing to receive them back through his son who would come, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And throughout the Old Testament, we have an unraveling of that and explaining more and more to be understand of who this coming Savior would be. But the Old Testament doesn't just tell us about who Jesus will be. It also tells us something of what heaven will be like. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. I'm sorry I don't have the page number. Ezekiel 47. It's more than halfway through your Bible. Um, If you can't find it, you can just listen. Ezekiel 47. You could do a whole study on comparisons between the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. It's interesting that uh, Revelation seems to follow the same outline that uh, Ezekiel follows. And you can trace these different themes. And in fact, much of the language in Revelation is borrowed from Ezekiel. And if you look with me at Ezekiel 47, and the first 12 verses, we're not going to read it all. But you see here that Ezekiel is having a vision in the same way as John had a vision in Revelation. And he sees the temple, and that's uh, something that he's described over several chapters. And as he comes to the table, or to the temple, there is water that comes out from it, a stream. And he talks about the trickle of the stream, but it goes on. Uh, and verse 5 again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. So from this temple comes this stream that ends up being a river. And then look at the next verse, verse 6. When he's led back along the bank of the river, what is it that Ezekiel sees? Into verse 7. Along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. And the the angel says to him, this water flows from the eastern region down and enters into the sea and so on. Um, Keep skimming down and you get to verse 12. And on the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves will be for healing. Does any of that ring any bells with what we've just read? Going back to Revelation chapter 22, we see we have the tree of life on either side of the river with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. There's a direct link between Ezekiel 47 
and Revelation 22. And so in the Old Testament, although Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden and have no right of access to the tree of life, there is a hint, there is a hint that heaven will have something that is for their good, for their healing, something that will give life, something that will bring refreshing, something that will undo the curse. And that God's people are to hope for that and to look for that. But it comes all the more clear to us in the New Testament. And so leaving behind the Old Testament, let's move to see the tree of life in heaven. The tree of life in heaven. Christian brother and sister, lift up your eyes now to heaven. Think about heaven. Think about everything that's contained in heaven. Think about the joys of heaven. Think about the glory of heaven. Think about the perfection of heaven. And think that that is your real home. That's where you really and truly belong. And those of you who don't trust in heaven, listen to heaven and consider yourself. Think about your state. Think about the fact that you're outside of heaven now and you will forever be outside of heaven unless you believe in Jesus Christ. But the thing is, That what we read in the Old Testament, in a sense we can say the New Testament is better, as it shows us Christ. And in a sense we can say what we read here in Revelation, we know that heaven will be better. These are symbols. These are metaphors. And the fullness will be even better by far. There's a a description here of the water of life, which is as bright as crystal. But even that falls far short of what it really will be like to see with your own eyes. The Garden of Eden literally means the garden of delights, paradise. But heaven will be a better garden even than that. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And isn't that the best part of heaven? For those of you who love Christ, the best part is not the the river of life, not the tree of life, not any of these wonderful things, crystal and so on, the, the streets paved with gold. It's to be with Jesus in paradise. Heaven is so much better than the symbolism. And there are many times that God's people ask questions about heaven. I'm sure I'm not the only one that wonders what it will be like. But First John tells us what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that's when Jesus appears, that we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When people ask me, what will heaven be like? Beyond the symbolism of revelation, that's the verse I go to. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, What we will be has not yet appeared. But I know this. We'll be like Jesus. And I'm content to rest in that promise. Here in Revelation 22, instead of having a temple from which flows the river of life, uh, instead we have the Lord God and the Lamb. Look back at chapter 21 and verse 22. And we have this definitive difference from Ezekiel's vision. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And now I move back into chapter 22, verse 1, and you see that this river, the water of life, flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Life comes from God. 
and through the mediation of Christ, the Lamb. There can be no life without Christ, without the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself spoke of this water of life in John 4, as he spoke to that Samaritan woman who desperately needed water of life. He said, everyone who drinks of this water, that is the water from the well, they will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So we have that. The water that Jesus gives. This water of life that that flows from the throne of the Lord God Almighty and from the Lamb. It brings life. And on either side of this river, we see here in verse 2, is the tree of life. And it's interesting here, isn't it? That where sin loses loses us our access to the tree of life, sin cuts us off from coming near this tree, in heaven there is beautiful access to it. Full access. The river does not divide you from the tree of life. It's not that the tree of life is simply at one side of the river and you're left wondering, how can I cross the river? It's too deep to swim in. No, the tree of life extends over both. What a tree it is. On either side of the river, all have access to it. One tree, one source of life, not multiple trees with multiple sources, not multiple ways to heaven, one tree of life, and yet the fruit is everywhere for everyone in heaven to reach. No one is separated from it. Ezekiel 47 had the idea of on the banks of both sides of river of the river there were all kinds of tree for all kinds of trees for food. It was like a forest of trees with all kinds of fruit. But here we have one tree, but extending its branches all over to both sides, so that fruit is in ready access to all people in heaven. Friends, when you go to heaven, if you're trusting in Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you're the least of all these, as Jesus spoke of. It doesn't matter if you're the least of all the saints. You will still have access to this tree of life because its branches spread on all sides, all around. No one will be held back. Although there are degrees of glory, and we will differ as one star differs from the other in glory, yet even the least has, the, has the, all this abundance of fruit from the tree of life. So we see that it's on either side of the river, but the next thing we see is that there are 12 kinds of fruit. Again in verse 2. Or we could go into the number 12. The number 12 makes us think perhaps of the 12 tribes. Makes us think of the 12 apostles. And so it makes us think of the, uh, the complete church for instance. But I think the thing here about the 12 kinds of fruit. Is that there's an abundance. We know and children you know this. If you go to a tree. If you go to an apple tree. It's only possible for the apple tree to grow apples. You don't expect to find oranges on an apple tree. You don't expect to find bananas on an apple tree. You expect to find apples because a tree grows one type of fruit. But this tree of life 
grows 12 kinds of fruit. Now, I don't think we're to take this all literally, as if literally in heaven this is exactly the way it will be, but it's showing to us the abundance of it. Uh, The covenanter James Durham said this, Though it be but one tree, yet it is an orchard for, for variety and satisfaction. There'll be no boredom in heaven. You'll not get to heaven and say, well, I'm fed up with eating this one type of fruit over and over again. No, none of that. Heaven will be exciting. Heaven will be interesting. Heaven will be satisfying. Just as in the Garden of Eden, God planted every type of tree and they were pleasant to the sight and good for food. So too in heaven, even to a greater extent in heaven, it will be better by far. Eden was the shadow, the type of heaven, and heaven is greater. The next thing we see about the tree of life is that it yields fruit each and every month. It's interesting, these 12 kinds of fruit, and there are 12 months in a year, and each month of the year there are these 12 kinds of fruit. What does that show us? It shows us the abundance of this tree of life. Every month is harvest. Now, we've moved away uh, from being an agricultural society. If you live, most of us live in towns. Um, You go to the supermarket, and any type of fruit you want, you get it. Even, although some fruits are more in season in particular times of the year, it doesn't really hinder us from buying all kinds of fruit. Um, But you think about how uh, harvest only comes once a year. And that's the way it really is. Harvest only comes once a year. And that's why uh, various societies have festivals around harvest time. It's a great time of year. Once the work is done, once the crops have been brought in, it's time to celebrate. It's time to enjoy yourself. It's time to eat and drink and be merry. The work is done for the year. And especially when God provides the richness of the harvest. You can think of the Psalms that speak of uh, the years dripping with his mercy. He crowns the year with goodness. That's the harvest. God blesses. The harvest is the time of year for joy. And here in heaven, it's harvest every month of the year. There is joy. There is abundance. And friends, what do you think that means? It means that every month of the year, for all eternity in heaven, there will be thanksgiving to God, worshipping him, praising him for the abundance that he gives. But then we see also, on this tree of life, there are the leaves of the tree, which are for the healing of the nations. Now, that's mentioned for us in Ezekiel, that there are leaves of the trees for healing. It doesn't mention healing of the nations. But here, the leaves of the trees are for the he- of the tree of life is for the healing of the nations. The nations will be present in heaven. People from all tribes, all languages. And the leaves of this tree of life will heal. Because in heaven there is no death. In heaven there is no sickness. This tree of life symbolizes the reversal of the curse. Genesis 2 and 3, we can't read those chapters without thinking of the curse. The ground is cursed for your sake and for mine. It's cursed because of our sin, because of Adam's fall. Thorns and thistles grow. Weeds, 
didn't exist in the Garden of Eden. But in heaven, all of this is undone. The curse is removed. Now, some of you might be pedantic, and you might say, well, if these leaves are for the healing of the nation, does that imply uh, that there will be sickness in heaven? And when we get sick, we have to go to the tree of life and get the leaves and heal ourselves with those leaves? Well, it's a metaphor, friends. It's not something that we're to, to read it in that literal sense. There will be no sickness in heaven. But that's what this is showing us. There will be fullness of health. It's Heaven is therapeutic. The tree of life is therapeutic. And for those of you that are going through times of illness, for those of you who aren't in the best of health, it's good for you to know that. Heaven has the leaves of the tree of life for your healing and for mine. Friends, life is suffering. Isn't that what life is? Life is characterized by suffering. The thorns and the thistles, the labor with the sweat of your brow, the curse as we saw on Thursday on childbearing, the sickness that comes to our loved ones and to ourselves, death, our great enemy, and more than that, sin, the suffering that comes by sin, because sin is misery. And friends, I want you to think about yourself for a moment and think about your own sin and think about how your own sin brings suffering to you. Your foolish choices, your wrong actions bring suffering to your life. And sometimes God gives you the grace to look back on your sinful choices and you see a direct line of suffering. Because I sinned in that way, this consequence came and it's miserable. It's miserable. But even if there's no physical suffering, there's emotional suffering, there's spiritual suffering in sin. Do you feel good when you sin? Do you sin and then rejoice in your sin? Or do you sin and weep? Do you sin and say, I wish I hadn't done that? Do you sin and taste the bitterness of it? Sin is misery. And we are so full of shame and we're so full of regrets. Or think about the sin that comes against us. Not just my sin, but people who sin against me. Even if you're innocent in a matter, people sin against you and it hurts. Think about betrayal. Think about slander. We feel it, don't we? It's painful. And yet, friends, in heaven, the leaves of the tree of life will heal all that away. It's for the healing of the nation. Although creation now groans, healing is in heaven. Doesn't this tree of life show us Christ? Doesn't this tree of life show us the one from whom all blessings flow? Doesn't it show us that the mediator of the covenant of grace is opening up this way for us to come and to have life? To come and to have health. To come and to have happiness. To come and have joy. To come and have glory. And friends, it's only by Jesus Christ that we can have access to this tree of life. Every single one of us in this room is either in Adam or in Christ. Either guilty of breaking the covenant of works or having one who keeps the covenant of works for us as we're told in God's word for as in Adam 
all die. Even so, all who are in Christ shall be made alive. But best of all, friends, if, if you can think of a best of all in, in this picture of heaven, best of all, I think, is the fact that this is forever. It's forever. It's immutable. When Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, their nature was free. Their will was free. They could choose to sin or they could choose not to sin. And of course, they chose to sin. And so their access to the tree of life wasn't fixed and permanent. It was subject to change. Their sin meant that they lost the blessing. But friends, in heaven, we're not there under probation. In heaven, we're not there, and God will say, well, we'll see if they do better this time. No, in heaven, it's unchangeable. In heaven, our access to the tree of life will be forever. In fact, it's not that we're in heaven with the possibility of sinning or not sinning, as Adam and Eve had. We're in a better condition in heaven, a glorified condition. The state of glory is far better than the state of innocence because in heaven it is not possible to sin. It wasn't that way for Adam and Eve. Possible to sin, possible not to sin. But in heaven, and friends, if you go there, it will not be possible for you to sin. Your nature won't desire it. There will be no temptation. There will be no devil there on your back. He will not be prowling around you like a roaring lion. There'll be no corruption in your inner being, desiring things that are contrary to the word of God. There'll be no flesh lusting against the spirit. No, we will only be inclined to good because we will be so glorified and so perfected. And we see that hinted at in the passage. Look at verse 3, for instance. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer. No longer. Look at verse 5. At the end of the verse, they will reign forever and ever. Do you, see, do you see these as promises, friends? That if we go to heaven, and if we have access to that tree of life, no longer will there be anything accursed, and we will reign forever and ever. The heavenly state is better than that state of innocence. Paradise with Jesus is better than the Garden of Eden. But friends, let's ask the question, who has access to this tree of life? Or who will have access to it? Who will be in heaven to enjoy it? And I want us to look at verses 14 and 15. We get the tree of life mentioned again here. Now this is a, a difficult part of God's word. Um, I'll read it here in the ESV verse. First of all, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, I know some of you read from different versions of the Bible. And if you're using New King James or King James, verse 14 reads really very different. Uh, those of you that are using that, it would say in the New King James, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may, may have right to the tree of life. 
So blessed are those who do his commandments versus blessed are those who wash their robes. This is an area of theological study called textual criticism, and I'm going to put my hands up. I'm not an expert in it, Um, and so I'm not going to try to lead you through the, the murky waters of textual criticism in any great sense. But what I will say, uh, if you were to look at these two sentences in Greek, and I know most of you don't know Greek, and you, just to look at the two sentences, one, and there's a picture of this online, one sentence on top of the other, they do look really similar. It, it, it would be very easy if you were writing down, if you were trying to copy the top sentence, you're writing it down to accidentally write the bottom sentence. The, the letters are just a few uh, different in each word. And so somewhere along the way, some scribe made a mistake. That's, that's quite apparent. Um, and that can worry us because we're left thinking, well, what is the word of God? What is the true word of God? And you get unbelieving scholars who will jump on this issue and they'll say, well, there you have it. What you have in the Bible is so error-ridden that we don't even know what the original said. And how can you believe such a book that is full of errors. Well, I want to just explain that that is not the case. We can have confidence in the word of God, even when we have problems like this. There are ancient books that we have far fewer manuscripts of, far fewer copies of than we have of the New Testament. The Bible is extraordinarily reliable in terms of the various texts that we find. And in fact, in the Bible, something like 99 plus percent of the text all totally agree. And there's no problem at all. It's just a few places where there are textual variants. And when we think of those textual variants, um, they're not really very significant at all. And let me give you uh, three or four examples. Um, the first one, and this is a real one, One text might say, he said, whereas the other text says, Jesus said. Now, if you look at the context, it's very obvious that it's Jesus that said the thing. Uh, But one text will say, he said. The other says, Jesus said. Is that a big problem to us? Does that shape your faith? Does that tell you the Bible can't be trusted, that one says, he said, the other said, Jesus said? I don't think so. It doesn't change at all. Another textual variant is the name of John, who wrote this book. Does he have two N's in his name in Greek or, or one N? Does that shake your faith? It doesn't shake my faith when people misspell my name. You know who, I'm, who, who we're talking about. It doesn't change anything. Uh, but yet that is, you can imagine, if you were writing out the Bible, there were no computers in these days. And if you had to copy it out, it'd be hard not to, to make a mistake here or there. Um, But even the variants in the text that are more challenging, I want you to believe this and to hear this, there is not a single textual variant that changes any point of doctrine. Not a single one. And even this one here, there's not uh, a change in doctrine at all. Now let's go back to what the two readings are. Either blessed are those who wash their robes, that they can have the right to the tree of life, or those, blessed are those who do his commandments. Now, some people jump on this and they argue for a theological difference. The difference between salvation by grace 
and salvation by works. Salvation by grace, they say, is washing your robes in the blood of Christ. Faith in Jesus. That's the way of blessing. Whereas doing the commandments as being the way of blessing, that's legalism. Uh, and, and that's salvation by works. Well, let's not be so hasty to say that. There's not really a, a difference here. Because even if you were to look back at verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There is a blessing for those who obey. Obedience brings blessing. So it's not legalistic to say that. It's not salvation by works to say that you're blessed if you obey. In fact, Revelation 1 verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. So Revelation has already said that. But also, uh, uh, this is a grammatical point, might go over some people's heads, but nevertheless, in both options, the verb has the idea of do it and keep doing it. It's called a present participle. Wash your robes and keep washing your robes. Or do the commandments and keep doing the commandments. Uh, those who, who argue it must be wash your robes because that's salvation by grace, well, Yes, we wash our robes when we first believe, but we're to keep washing them. That's the idea in the verb. Keep washing them in the blood of the Lamb. Keep going back in repentance. Keep going back. Uh, and so that, I think that takes away from it the heat. It takes away from it the theological fact. It's not at all a choice here between salvation by works and salvation by grace. Both fit uh, quite easily into the system of doctrine that we hold. My preference is for uh, the other version that we don't have here. Blessed are those who do his commandments. But I only, I only lean that way. I'm not an expert. I don't have a huge, strong opinion. But nevertheless, that's the way I lean in this. But I think no matter which way we look at it, it doesn't change the fact. We are to be sincere. We're to continue on in the faith. We're to keep going back for forgiveness. We're to keep going repentantly. We're to keep seeking to do the commandments of God. These things are all connected. And I take that other view that blessed are those who do, um, who do his commandments, that they might have right to the tree of life. But that obedience is what we call evangelical obedience. That is obedience that is motivated and enabled by the gospel. If you're a Christian here this evening, why do you obey Christ? Think about it. Do you really obey Christ to try to get into heaven? Do you really obey Christ to try to earn forgiveness? Is that what motivates you? Or do you obey Christ because you love him with all your heart? He has saved you from your sin. He has transformed you. And whatever he asks from you, you'll gladly give it because you love him. He's your saviour and you love him. That's evangelical obedience. There's no thought at all of works, is there? Not at all. In fact, Hebrews 12 verse 14 urges us to this evangelical obedience. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which you shall not see the Lord. Friends, I tell you this evening, if you're not holy, you won't see the Lord. 
And that's not saying that you have to be perfectly holy. But unless you are separated from worldliness, unless you are separated from sin, unless the course of your life is, is distinct from transgression and iniquity, you will not see the Lord and you will not be at the tree of life. This passage is showing us that we need consistency and we need sincerity and we need repentance. And ongoing we must be turning back to new obedience. And this is the evidence that you have a right of access to the tree of life. Because look at the opposite in verse 15. Outsider, the dogs, and the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You see, the contrast here is between those who are blessed for doing the commandments and those who are cursed for not doing them. And for doing the exact opposite. It's evidence isn't it? It's evidence of who is in. And who is out. By our lives. Friends does this reflect you? Which one reflects you? Are you one who is seeking sincerely out of love. To do the commandments? Or are you someone who is still in your sin? In all this idolatry. And worldliness. Sexual immorality. Loving and practicing falsehood. Friends, the contrast between heaven and the outside is unthinkable. Think of that. Verse 15, that word outside. Jesus more than explains the terrifying prospect of hell. Outside of heaven. And friends, one commentator says, What can a doomed and fleeting world afford in comparison to such a prospect as this heaven that we've read of. What is there in this world that you love so much, that you feel you need so much, that you're willing to sell your soul for it, to have it for a short moment, a short moment of sin, and to avoid heaven, to be with Jesus forever? What on earth could there be that you would sell your soul for? Friends, it doesn't bear thinking about. And yet so many people hear of heaven and choose hell. Dear friends, this morning many of us took of the sacrament. As we've been thinking through this communion season, we've thought of our sin. The sin that came through that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We've rejoiced in our sin bearer at the tree upon which he was crucified. Let us now this evening as we close our communion season long for communion with Christ at the tree of life in heaven. Let us long for these things. Let us seek steadfastly to continue to do his commandments, to sincerely seek him, looking forward to heavenly glory. For there is a heaven. Thomas Watson says about heaven, the desires of the glorified saints are infinitely satisfied. There is nothing absent which they could wish might be enjoyed. And there is nothing present which they could wish might be removed. Think about that. Nothing present in heaven that you want it gone. And nothing absent that you'll be sitting there thinking, I really miss that. To paraphrase Hebrews 11, if we think about the land from which we've gone out, we think about our former way of life 
and our sin. If we dwell on that and we long for that, there's an opportunity for us to return to that. But instead, the exhortation, desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Because God is not ashamed to be called your God. For he has prepared for you a city. Look forward to heaven. Go home tonight and have sweet dreams of heaven. Go home and think about the glory that's to be revealed. Go home and think about this tree of life and all the joy it will bring. The healing, the fruit, the satisfaction. Go home trusting in Jesus Christ as the only way, truth and life, to get you to heaven. And may God encourage you to live for him. Amen.